This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Mobile hunters, are you looking to make the move to saddle hunting this year? Or maybe you just want to add a few new pieces of gear or upgrade your current saddle gear. If that's the case, then head over to tetherednation.com where they've got all mobile hunters covered. Whether you're new to saddle hunting or an old timer, Tethered is your one-stop saddle shop. From saddles to ropes, sticks, ascenders, whatever it is you need, they have you covered. I've personally been using their gear for the past three seasons. Now, my base setup consists of the Phantom Saddle and the Predator Platform. And if you're wondering why, I've chosen to use their gear above all else. Here's the cliff notes. They're innovative and pushing the mobile hunting forward overall. They cut no corners and prioritize the safety and performance of their gear. They care about the community that they've created and their gear allows me to hunt free. And above all else, I like to support good people doing good work. If you're interested in upping your mobile hunting game, then head to tetherednation.com. This podcast is brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. Skull Brew Coffee roasts premium single-origin coffee, guaranteeing to deliver the freshest coffee directly to your doorstep. The kicker? They're 2% for conservation certified and donate 10% of their proceeds back to organizations who support the interests of our hunting community. So go to SkullBrewCoffee.com and pick up one of their three killer roasts and fuel your hunt and fill more tags with Skull Brew Coffee. Welcome to the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 238. Today we're kicking off another round of the DIY report, and I'm joined by my good buddy Chad Sylvester, and we're bringing you summer trail camera tips. So stay tuned. up everyone happy wednesday to you hope you're doing well hope you are feeling fine in this middle of july it's crazy man that it's the middle of july already it's you know a couple turnarounds and and deer season is going to be here so i hope everyone got their deer work done in the in the timber um at this point have their cameras out and 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 stuff like that fortunately i have most of mine out i still have to i think make a trip up north yet one more time i'm hoping but my um my summer just kind of got filled up the remainder of it on the weekends where it's, it's good and it's bad. I had to have some work done in my basement. It's fully kind of uh, finished basement with a barn and stuff like that. And it's a little bit dated because the gentleman that we bought the house from several, a couple years ago, you know, was an older fella. And I always kind of wanted to redo the basement and turn it into a, a man cave and kind of make it look like a lodge. Cause there's a big stone fireplace and stuff like that in it. And uh, I shouldn't complain too much because I'm actually getting to do that now to place to put my mounts and just all, you know, make it lodgy, campy kind of kind of feel with with some with some dead animals and so forth. Um, so I'm in the midst of doing that, which means it's also going to take up most of the weekends that I'll have, quote unquote, free between now and basically in and in, in, in basically hunting season. So. The positive side of things, I get my I get my man cave. The downside of things is that I'm going to basically spend the next however many weeks uh, on Saturdays and Sundays uh, 
chopping wood, cutting wood, putting in floors, putting in walls and, and doing all that kind of fun stuff. So that's what the next few weeks for, for me look like. I have been able to kind of, this is also kind of the time of year where it's like, I'll start doing a ton of shooting outside out of the saddle and stuff like that. I'll start kind of tinkering with gear too. And, you know, just the one thing last year, I guess, whenever I started, when I bought a new bow last year, I ended up buying a new bow. Cause I was just the last bow I had, I was just, I was struggling with as far as like getting it to tune. So got the Matthews that I've been shooting shoots killer. Love it. But I actually, whenever the last bow that I was shooting, I, I had to change to shooting 120 or I'm sorry, a hundred grain heads on it because I just couldn't get one twenty fives to tune. And I prefer one, I prefer one twenty fives. And so I had kind of been poking around thinking about maybe changing because this bow, I can shoot one twenty fives out of it. So I had kind of been playing around with different point weights and stuff like that. And at the same time, kind of started playing around with different, you know, broadheads potentially and seeing if there was something out there that I might, you know, be interested in, in, in checking out. And my buddy Chad and the, all the guys over at Exodus, they had been shooting these afflictor broadheads for the past years and have, you know, for a couple of seasons actually, and have had really good success with them. And I'm always kind of, I don't know, maybe a late adopter when it comes to broadheads. It's like, I like to know someone else shot them before maybe I shoot them to a, to a degree. And so I ended up getting uh, two packs of those because I wanted to kind of see how they flew. So I got some hundred grain heads and got some one twenty fives. Um, and ended up shooting a man. And those things were just stupid accurate, you know, out to, I think I was able to shoot out to roughly 35 yards, um, and was just dropping them right where my field points were, were landing super sharp out of the box. So, so that was killer. Um, you know, the, they actually make the, the, the furals, um, in Dayton, Ohio, which is cool. And then they kind of, then they finished the manufacturing all in, all in Texas. So my plan for this year, after shooting those, I was actually able to change to the 125 grain heads, even though my bow was set up for a hundred grain points and it actually, they, they were landing pretty consistently. So it wasn't like I had to change my setup. I didn't have to change my, my, my sight tape or anything like that. I was pretty surprised. Um, maybe I shouldn't have been, maybe, maybe they wasn't as big of a difference in terms of the weight, but they flew awesome. And so I'm actually going to make a switch to those, you know, they make some, uh, they make some mechanicals, but, uh, I'm actually going to be shooting, the K2 fixed blade broadheads. I think it's like an inch and an inch and an eighth uh, cutting di- diameter uh, for the 100s and the 125s. But I'll be shooting the one, the uh, 125s this year. If you want to check them out, you can head over to afflictorbroadheads.com and give those guys a check. And then before we jump into today's podcast, got a cool shirt for you guys today. But before we do that, I want to pass on some info you're going to want uh, related to trail cameras before we jump into this episode. So as you guys know, my buddies from Exodus every year do velvet fest and it's really kind of the official unofficial kickoff to deer season so velvet fest is back deer season is here and exodus is helping us get get the ball rolling for everyone's summer scouting you know when this time of the year hits we know it's time to get the cameras out mine are already out i have a few that i still need to get out but with that from july 21st through august 11th they'll have some awesome prizes they're going to be uh for people who use the hashtag velvet fest on social media channels uh you know so if you're sharing a picture of hanging cameras of uh of, of velvet popping in a bean field near you post that picture hashtag velvet fest and they're going to be giving away some some prizes uh based on that hashtag also if you're in the market for a trail camera velvet fest is the perfect opportunity to Pick up some cameras and get ready for the season. Um, Exodus will be sending out some specific kind of deals and savings uh, through their email newsletter. So be sure to head over to ExodusOutdoorGear.com and sign up for the newsletter so you don't miss out on on anything like that uh, going forward during the during the course course of this campaign. And then every single camera, this is awesome, man. So every single camera order that comes through will come with a random prize card that you have to scratch off to reveal a reveal a prize. And they're giving away a ton of really cool stuff and a bunch of huge deals on that. So you don't want to miss out on that, but to even sweeten the pot even more to make things even better as if it could get any better is that they're going to have a limited edition hashtag velvet fest laser engraved camera. And if you're the lucky recipient to get that camera, you'll receive a $1,000 gift card for the Exodus store. That's right. A grand, a G note, you're going to get in the form of an Exodus gift card. That's a lot of cameras. That's a lot of cell cameras. That's a lot of whitetails 
coming to uh, coming to a pocket near you or to a phone near you. So there's a lot to this campaign. So you want to just head over to the website, exodusoutdoorgear.com, and make sure you're on their newsletter because you won't want to miss out on any of these opportunities that are coming up. And if you're not familiar with Exodus, which I find it hard to believe if you listen to this podcast for any length of time, but over the last six years, Exodus has consistently shown they build quality trail cameras. They flat out work, best trail camera warranty, period. Every single camera is backed by a five-year warranty and even comes with theft damage coverage. That's right, five years, literally half a decade, and you'll be covered by the Exodus five-year warranty. But more than likely, you won't need it because their cameras are already built to last. So make sure you're taking part in the Velvet Fest celebration. Be sure to tag and uh, tag me, that truth from the stand, uh, when you're making your social posts along with hashtag Velvet Fest because I want to... I want to see what you guys are up to. So with that, we're going to go ahead and jump into today's show. It's with my buddy Chad from Exodus. We thought this time of year with cameras going out, velvet clearly popping, and uh, hopefully you guys got some good inventory on cameras already. We thought we would uh, do a podcast and do a DIY report, kind of sharing Exodus's tips for summer trail camera strategies and how to get the best cameras and things you need to watch out for, how to keep bugs out of it, things like that. Anything you would need to know related to summer trail cameras, we're going to be covering it. So as always, I want to thank you all for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today, as I mentioned in the intro, we are rolling into another DIY report. This one is the subject matter is very appropriate for this time of year as I have my buddy, my good buddy, my road dog, Chad, by God, Sylvester from Exodus Outdoor Gear on to talk a little uh, trail camera strategy throughout the seasons. What's going on, brother? Not too much, man. Just uh, soaking in the rainy weather here in Ohio. Um, it seems like it's been raining for seven, eight straight days, but uh, I guess we needed it because it's, it's been dry. Yeah, it's been dry, so we need it. But uh, other than that, not too much, man. Just um, kind of going through the gear list, making some tweaks and preps for, uh, you know, I think we're 60 days out from September, so the clock is ticking. And just trying to chip away, uh, chip away at the list. Yeah, I hear you, man. It's, uh, you know, I, I finally got all my cameras out just, I think, two weeks ago. Finally finished, finished that. It, it's, uh, it was a challenge this year, man, with like all the extra snow that I had early in the, uh, early in the year. It delayed me getting up north, which kind of mm-hmm. delayed me getting stuff out around here. And I put out more cameras and kind of explored some new areas. So I've, I finally think I finally have everything done at this point, at least locally. Um, same as you, shooting the bow a lot kind of going through the fine tuning of, of my gear, making sure everything's ready to rock and roll. And uh, yeah, I mean, mid September for me is going to be here before I, before I know it. And hopefully hope I felt like I'm ill prepared this year, but I, actually I'm probably just about on time. <laughs> I don't know if that ever, I don't know if that ever, if that feeling ever changes or goes away. I think it's just the anticipation you know, we wait, we wait and wait and wait and wait. And when it finally gets here, it's, um, I don't, maybe it's a little bit of nervousness, um, anticipation, excitement. I think it's all that just kind of, kind of wrapped up into our, uh, our weird minds. Yeah. That, and that, and I think it's the anticipation of setting trail cameras for the summer and then waiting for those handful of like big velvet bucks that you've been waiting for all year to see. And like, you're not seeing them, you're not seeing them. Then boom, you get one and you get all stoked. And then like, you don't see another one for a couple of weeks. <laughs> you're like, you know, yeah. it, you're just like, man, did I ha- do I have these in the right place? Do I need to go out and move them? You know, but you know, knowing that the, you know, depending on where you're at and what type of, you know, uh, what type of situation your property's in, you know, public or whatever the case is and what your food source situation might be, yeah. you may not be, you may not be popping off on those on those velvet pictures as, as frequently as, as some others, which doesn't mean it's a bad spot for the fall. But with that, that's what we're here to kind of talk about, man. So if you're down with it, we're just going to jump right into what I'll kind of refer to as just the summer trail camera kind of strategies and, and, and setups. And that's what we're going to cover in this first section. Sound good? Yeah, let's. Yeah, let's do it. Awesome. So, you know, this is really for folks out there that, you know, you know, whenever you're thinking of setting up summer trail cameras, you know, there's, there's some do's and and some don'ts. And like I was just mentioning, sometimes there's a little bit of frustration around trying to find places to hang cameras that are going to find velvet bucks. And I think a lot of people know, you know, um, all the kind of gold standard places that you would hang it, whether it's over mineral, you know, field edges and, and stuff like that. But first, you know, for you, man, you know, what is your overall goal of summer trail cameras? Cause I think sometimes people put maybe a little bit too much stock in them. So what is it you're really trying to get out of your summer trail cameras? 
the majority of my summer sets is just kind of keeping tabs on growing bucks. So knowing that a deer had made it through last year and maybe he was two or three or whatever. And this year he's going to be, you know, 130 plus or 125 plus or maybe 150 plus and i know that he's alive and he's in the area and i know him from last year if it's an area that i'm hunting so i can kind of go back and look at the data that i had for that specific deer come fall and the majority of my sets are that way they are inventory driven um there are some sets that i will use for i guess more hunting intel and that's probably going to sound a little bit goofy for some people because I think when you start talking about summer trail cameras, there's there's a lot of people out there that think that, um, you know, there's not a whole lot of information you're going to gather during the summer months that are going to actually help you hunt bucks come fall. Mm-hmm. And I've been on that side of the fence, and I'm slowly starting to kind of pick my way, not necessarily completely away from that perspective but now you know after the last six seven years of running you know uh, an insane amount of cameras i'm starting to see things that i can use for the fall to hunt specific mm-hmm. bucks so what what are some of those things that you're seeing that you're able to kind of put in your bag of tricks and kind of project forward to the fall well the biggest thing is you make it like utilizing scrapes so everybody wants to talk about scrapes in late october um, November, you know, pre-rut, rut, maybe the post-rut. But when you when you find the right scrape and it's it's a community scape, community scrape or a primary scrape, um, we're seeing deer hit those three sixty-five. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they're not paw, they're not pawing on the ground and urinating in those scrapes, but they are still working in the licking branch, um, and they are still coming through and frequent frequenting those areas. In fact, what you kind of mentioned. Um, in the first couple of minutes of the podcast of, you know, not maybe being worrisome of not getting um, any big velvet deer on camera, then boom, you, you know, a camera pops off and you get a couple of pictures and it's a couple more weeks. I went the entire, what is, we're, this is July 12th. So I've, I've gone from May until now. I got my first big deer picture in the big woods on a scrape yesterday or two days ago when I sent you that text. Yeah. yeah. So it's been two months. Um, and, on, and, you know, in May, their their racks aren't, you know, completely developed. And it's hard to tell what they are. But typically, you could tell if it's a if it's a mature animal or not. Right. So it took me two months to get my first big deer picture um, in the big woods. And that was on a scrape. Mm-hmm. So I think that when you find those scrapes, I mean, you almost have to do it in, in your postseason scouting, right? Like yep. if, if, if you don't have any of those locations already kind of marked on your map or marked in the area, marked on Onyx, it's really hard to go out. When all the leaves are on the trees, all the vegetation has grown up, it's really hard to go out and find those broken licking branches because, you know, the leaves are going to cover everything up. The ground's not going to be all pawed up. So you're not going to have a big scraping area underneath that licking branch. So, you know, our recommendation, or when we're talking about this, it's usually historical scrapes, historical primary scrapes, or we're creating mock scrapes. Um, either in a terrain funnel or maybe around some cover uh, in close proximity to some kind of cover or possibly a, a, a bedding area. But those two things, utilizing scrapes, running cameras on scrapes, I feel is something that you can uh, put in your back pocket for fall because those bucks will be back on those primary scrapes, usually related around doe bedding in the rut, um, come fall. So if you have those bucks during the summer months on those scrapes, um, you should be putting that in your back pocket. And to take that a step further, if you have history with those bucks, you should be going back to that annual data from the previous season and looking at those daylight appearances and trying to figure out, okay, you know, log the, log the weather data, what, what was going on this day, why was that buck on its feet, and then kind of forecast that into a three, four, five-day window for the upcoming season. And when those weather conditions are right, your butt better be in the stand. Yeah. Yeah, no, I totally agree with you, man. Like, it's funny because I just, as you were talking, I wrote down summer trail cameras, you know, and this is maybe, you know, I'll, I'll preface this by saying, you know, obviously, you know, we're probably not going to spend a lot of time on talking about, you know, field edges and, 
uh, mineral sites and stuff like that. Cause those are pretty, you know, common practice. A lot of people, when they first start out using trail cameras, especially if they have farm access or whatever, like they're going to do that. Right. Or if they own a back 40 and they can put out mineral, they're right. going to put out mineral to kind of get, you know, these deer, you know, get inventory, you know, and I would say, you know, that's really at that point, all you're really getting in a lot of cases is that inventory. Cause once that mineral is gone and you can't have it out in the timber any longer, those pictures at that location oftentimes right. dry up whenever, the food starts to transition, especially if it's like a clover plot or if it's a bean plot or whatever the case is, all of a sudden those deer transition off that. It's not quite the prime spot that it was during the summer. And so it's not, it's not a hundred percent huntable data per se, but what I wrote down while right. you were, while you were, uh, while you were talking was summer trail cameras for public land, and especially, you know, big woods are really set in the winter. And it's actually funny because a lot of times when I'm scouting in the winter, I'll always carry a couple cameras with me. And when I run by scrapes, especially if it's a scrape that I've, I don't know about and there's a licking branch there, it's like if there's a scrape there and there's not a lot of sign there just in general, and there's not a licking branch, it's more of a pawing, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with it. But if I see a licking branch, I'm probably going to set a camera on it. And a lot of times during that time of year, I'll set a cell camera on it. That way, if I start to see does hit it and you know younger bucks or whatever hit it in, in, in the winter, I know now that that's a spot that's going to get utilized all year round, you know? And so now I know that, okay, that's another location I'm going to watch for the summer because I want to see who all is living in that general, in that general area. And so it might even be, would it be appropriate to kind of say like, you should be thinking about that during winter scouting and even setting cameras and qualifying the scrapes that you might want to keep a camera on for the summer during the winter. Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, one of the things that I guess we talk about as far as like long-term trail camera strategies and not everybody could do this because not everybody has a, you know, a vast number of cameras, but if you have some extra cameras laying around or maybe you can just go to Walmart or whatever and buy like the $25 Tascos, there's like, you could do those, um, do those test sites or those qualifying sites with those cheap cameras and just run them for a couple months that they're probably only going to last you a couple months. But if you can run them through the spring and qualify those sites, um, you know, to transition better cameras or maybe a cell camera, you know, into that area, mm-hmm. That's definitely something you want to be you want to be doing, but from our perspective, we're basically leaving the cameras up in those um, areas for twelve months, and we check them sparingly, maybe once, twice, um, you know, inside of twelve months. Usually, they're those long term strategies are, are are areas that we haven't hunted. We have a little bit of interest, but we're just trying to figure out what exactly is going on there. Mm-hmm. Um, and you could do that with cameras, um, and not you know not dedicate a whole lot of time yeah. um, into those you know, into those areas during, at least during the season. Right. Yeah. No, hundred percent agree, man. Cause sometimes what I've done is I, and I'll use a cell that way I don't have to go in and check necessarily. Right. It's, you know, I'll, I'll oftentimes do that. But the other thing I'll do too, is like if I hang it in the winter and I do see deer start to hit and maybe I just had a chance to speed scout it. Right. And I do see deer start to hit this scrape. It's like, I might end up going back in, in the winter. Once I get a couple deer hitting that scrape on camera or work in that licking branch and go back in and kind of give it a more thorough scout to make sure I, I have found everything that I need to find, so to speak. Right. Cause now all of a sudden that right. inventory told me, yep. okay, this is a 365 spot. There's probably some other stuff around here that I, that I didn't see in my first walk through. Let me go back and check it out. And it keeps me from wasting, you know, hours and hours of time walking through a piece that may or may not be any good. So I think that's an interesting sure. kind of take, man, that, you know, setting trail cameras, you know, in the winter for summer, almost like you're finding your spots. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, absolutely. Sweet. So what are, you know, so just, let's just say that it's going to be a typical setup here, right? Like we, we didn't, we didn't put any out in the winter, right. Over these key spots and stuff like that. You know, when are you typically making sure that you have all your trail, trail cameras in the timber or at least out, whether they're on field edges, mineral sites, regardless of what the setup is, when is your kind of drop dead date of when you want to have all of them out? Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com I like to have all of my cameras out like by the second week of June. And I, I'll 
the reason for that is I really, in these typical inventory areas where we're running minerals or running a bait site or it's inside corner of a bean field or something, there's really two card pools there for us. There's one, you know, mid-July, and then there's one post-August 18th to 20th. And that, that day, the August date's very specific. It's something that um, I picked up from Mark Jury talking about, you know, bucks when they when they're shifting around from their summer range to fall range he has this you know that two three day window marked down that bucks will often leave their summer range and make a two-day trip through their fall range and then be gone again until the actual shift happens Hmm. and it's something that i picked up on um in a podcast i can't remember which podcast it was but he was talking about trail camera strategies i picked that up from him, and then I seen that play out last year on two or three cameras on um, a couple deer that I, I was really watching really hard, and both those deer showed up between August uh, 18th and August 20th, and then they were gone until they were hardhorned, and then they moved back into that fall range. So, um, yeah, the drop dead day is, you know, if you held a gun and said pick a date, it would be the end of June. But I like to have my cameras out, you know, the second week of June, have everything out. You have your first card pull um, mid-July, and then you know you're looking at the the later part of August there. Now, the downside with that is, and this has bit me in the butt more than once, um, you know, the spring greenup has has happened, um, you know, by the second week of June, but the summer the summer growth is so rapid that there's oftentimes um, things will grow up into your field of view. And it'll really mess with your camera. So you have to be very particular with how you're setting those cameras up. It's not, you know, I'm going to run out here and, and throw this camera up, uh, you know, four feet off the ground and leave it and come back, you know, in 30 days. Because if you do that, you're going to end up with a bunch of false triggers. You're going to end up with uh, weeds or brush or leaves or branches or and things closing in on the uh, field of view of the camera. So you really have to take your time and be part- particular about how you're setting those things up. Um, at that at that time of year, right? Is there is there a rhyme or a reason to your to your mid July pool, or is it just more of they've been soaking for a month? And let me see if I'm even getting any intel, and if if not, then I might need to just I might need to move a couple of these. Is that really the approach, or is there something more to it? No, it's um it's more or less checking on the camera, making sure that there's no branches or no um you know right. no weeds or grasses and things you know um growing up and. I have 10,000 false, false triggers in Mm -hmm. there. So it's more checking on the camera, making sure the camera is working properly. Um, but, uh, kind of spin that back, say, uh, you know, I'm a normal guy and I got, I'm, I'm working with a fleet of 10 cameras. Then I would probably be a little more, more particular about, uh, what kind of inventory I'm getting on that camera. And if I wasn't getting what I was after, then I would move it. Um, now the bait stations, the mineral sites, you should be getting, you should be getting the inventory on, on those on those spots. Right. If you can legally bait it, if you can legally run mineral, there's zero reason. I mean, you'd have to really screw something up, um, you know, not to be getting inventory in a in a set like that. But more so, you know, those those bean field sets. Um, maybe it's a maybe it's a uh, like a staging area, or or maybe on the edge of a bedding summer bedding and some you know some CRP or some grass type stuff. If I wasn't getting the inventory I was looking for in those sets, those are the sets that I would be shifting around. And maybe sometimes it's not, you know, moving it completely off the property. Sometimes it's just finding the right trail to put it on or the right field edge, or maybe you need to go back into the timber a little bit. Um, so there's a lot of different scenarios there. I always say that, you know, if if you're not getting what you're after on that camera, ask yourself, you know, ask yourself why. Don't just say, oh, I'm not getting anything on here. I'm, let, me, I'm, let me move it. Because sometimes you can move it 20 or 30 yards and you're back in the game. You're in the money. So just be cautious of how fast you're giving up in a spot. Right, right. Man, that August 18th through 20th is is really interesting. I've never heard that before. And it's like got my it's got my head kind of spinning right now because I'm trying to think yeah. I'm trying to think back to any deer that I've had on camera the past couple years that I should be watching for that this year. And I think there's one, you know, last year, go ahead. Last year was the first time, last year was the first time I had ever heard anyone spit out that date, those dates or the reasoning behind it. But 
after I wrote when I when I heard that on the podcast, I wrote it down and then I seen it come to life with two specific deer in the big woods. Hmm. Um and then they were gone until they were hard horned. So I was like Did he give did do you remember it, what it, the rationale was for why like what the reasoning is that they that they make that excursion and then during that specific time frame? Is there any kind of or or don't you recall? I I think it was something about them just making that excursion to see what their typical fall range mm-hmm. um, is like currently making sure like nothing has changed, making sure that, you know, somebody didn't you know, clear cut or build a house there or, you know, whatever what the food I think situation might be or possibly. Okay. Yeah. 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 I think it's just like a, like a, almost like a scouting mission. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. It's, it's almost like before you, before you buy a house, like you go through and you do the walkthrough. You know, or before you rent an apartment, like yeah. you go do a yeah, walkthrough, exactly. and they're they're kind of doing the same thing. It's like, hey, before I rent this place out for like the next four months, I want to go check it out. Yeah, <laughs> you know, it's like maybe maybe check the maybe check the talent in the area. You know, <laughs> like, I don't know. Very, yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly, very possible. Like I said, it could have been dumb luck the way the way I heard that, and then the way it played out. Um, but it's something that I wrote down and I seen it come to life and it's something I'm paying attention to, um, moving forward. And this year I have specific dates set, you know, I'm not checking, um, any cameras until after those dates, uh, after those dates have passed. Yeah, no, that's a, I'm gonna, I'm actually going to watch it now this year. And I'm, and I'm just sitting here trying to think, I think the one deer I sent you the picture of, um, I think he was around last year, obviously you know, a little, a little smaller than he is this year, even though he's still a young deer. I just want to see if he, you know, if I need to go back and look at my pictures and see if I actually do have a picture of him from last year. And if I do, then I want to see if he, you know, what his, what his deal is. If he shows up on any other, um, any other cameras, I'm actually waiting for the one big one from last year to see if he hits the one scrape at around the same time frame that he hit it last year. Um, and that's coming up, I think in the next like two weeks. Just that he was passing through, you know, mm. the one thing, let me ask you this, man, like okay. what does, cause I, this is my hypothesis. I'm actually venturing, I guess I'm probably not going to get him if he is alive or that general bachelor group that was in that general area. I am venturing, I guess I'm probably not going to get them on camera this year in the, in that particular area. Reason being is that the food has changed completely around, like around this piece where there was tons of beans around yeah. last year and like i think a little bit of corn this year the corn that was there is not there it's a different grain the beans that were there last year are no longer beans and there's just corn everywhere like there's not a bean field anywhere yeah. nearby and i think the reason i got him last year on that particular camera was because of where the food was at you know and it was relatively far away from where i got a picture of him but it it made sense just based on like how he mm-hmm. was traveling um but then he ended up spending, you know, fall around there, around there as well. So I'm not too freaked out that I haven't seen him yet. Um, and of course he could be dead, right. but I also know that food's kind of playing a role in this. And so what do you, you know, whenever you're, whether it's big woods or whether it's, you know, just, you know, public pieces or whether it's farms or whatever the case is, like how much are you taking into consideration, you know, the, the rotation of crop and stuff? Oh, for sure. I mean, you, you, you have to, um, you know, your summer trail camera strategy thinking about food it's you know it's pretty damn similar to your fall strategy when you're thinking about food because the food is still driving driving those deer and yes like there's i understand that there's you know a, a ton of uh noxious weeds and forbs and bra- there's browse everywhere and whether they're eating you know ragweed or jewelweed they still want to be in those destined. They still want to be relatively close to those destination food sources where they're eating beans. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it's alfalfa, you know, those green, those green food sources. So, you know, in the ag ground that we run cameras in, it's pretty damn chopped up. I mean, it's small chunks of ground, you know, 20 to like on a large side, it'd be 80 acres probably. Right. So when you're, when you're on those small chunks, um, you know, I, even though the deer may be shifting their bedding around, I, we haven't seen like not getting them on camera because you know this this ten acre field is in uh, corn this year and not beans, and you know half a mile down the road this 
you know, 30 acre tillable field isn't beans and not, and not corn. So even though that there's crop rotations happening, it's on such a small scale and the properties are so chopped up. Um, we don't really see them, you know, we don't really see the deer not showing up, I guess. Right. So it's a lot less prevalent in, in our scenario and like these small chopped up uh, pieces of ground, but in the big woods, um, it's kind of similar, you know, when you get in, you know, I mean, big tracks of ground and you have these clear cuts in the, in the summertime, you know, that's where we focus our attention on for summer food is clear cuts. Cause it's like a giant natural nature's food plot. Yeah. I mean, you have stump shoots, you have all the noxious weeds, you have the, the, you know, the woody, uh, woody shrub tips and everything just exploding out of the ground there. But as those age, um, they become, they're harder to navigate. The food's starting to grow over the top of the deer. Um, even the browse itself is less attractive, but the state is usually implementing, they have some kind of TSI or some kind of timber plan, um, on these pieces. So as these new clear cuts pop up, oftentimes you see, you see deer will pile into Mm -hmm. them. So it's almost like if a random picture, like an ag ground where you had, you know, a couple square miles. So there was like a couple sections of ground there and all of a sudden, uh, a hundred acre bean field popped up and there was timber and bedding all around it. Like there would be so many, I mean, deer would just be pouring in there. So the new clear cuts are, um, pretty similar in that fashion. If you're thinking about new clear cuts being like nature's food plot. Yeah, no, totally. It, it, and that's the one thing it, that kind of ties back to fall hunting strategy as well. Right. It's like, you know, that you, you kind of, exactly. kind of chase the cuts. You know, I mean, especially if you're on a, a a big piece where they're doing a lot of TSI and stuff like that, you're always kind of searching for where that newest that newest cut is, and you know, and and maybe you throw a couple cameras at it during a summer, you know, to kind of watch it because maybe the first year it's not it's not primo. You need to kind of hunt it back off, like into the into the staging area or whatever. But once it get kind of gets gnarly and thick, and you know, starts to turn into a little bit more bedding, you can actually start hunting the the cut more so, and then it gives you the best of both worlds where it gives you food, but it also gives you a hard edge. You know, which is, you know, if you don't know where exactly. else to start for summer and maybe you don't have food sources, it's like cuts are great for food. Cuts are great for providing structure. You know, you at least start to get a an idea of maybe what you have in the area or if at minimum you can maybe, you know, X out a few spots that maybe you're not getting pictures and know that maybe certain areas of the cut are a little bit more active. And you're usually, you know, uh, there's usually some bare ground that's around there, too. And so it's, you, you're usually able to look to try to find some tracks as well to kind of give you some, Absolutely. some validation yes. too, you know, so a couple little things you yep. can put in your, in, in, in the toolbox to try to help you out on, on some of those pieces. But you already kind of talked about false triggers, right? Making sure that things are trimmed out. Cause I think we've got one in Kansas. It's got a, mm-hmm. got, is it one of the cameras in Kansas? There's one in Ohio that's just got like a big, I see it every, every time we get a, a night picture, I see like a big shoot of something. Every morning I wake up, I check the cameras and there's always a picture of that big green leaf, <laughs> like you know, every time yeah. on that camera. Yeah. But so we always already kind of yeah. talked about, you know, making sure that you keep stuff out of the way of the camera, make sure you're not getting false triggers from, you know, debris and, and, and those uh-huh. and weeds and stuff like that. But there's also false triggers you can be getting just from like the orientation of the sun and stuff like that. And I think that's one thing, especially during the summer, you know, people need to kind of think about is, is harsh lighting. You know, because you don't quite get that as much when yes. you get into the fall and stuff, just the angle of the sun and stuff like that. So can right. you talk a little bit about, you know, setting your camera yeah. or folks setting their cameras up to make sure that they're taking in like the orientation of the sun and the, and the harsh lighting that they're, that they're going to encounter during this time of year? Yeah, I think, well, one thing to understand is um, just how trail cameras are actually triggered. A lot of people think they're, it's like a motion sensor or it's motion and heat and that's the easiest way for someone to wrap their kind of wrap their head around it without being super nerdy. But the PIR sensor is actually monitoring the infrared radiation in that environment. And when there's a change, there's two elements in that sensor. And when, when there's a, a different reading from one element to the next, that's actually what triggers the camera, mm. um, which can happen, which can happen when there's movement of, uh, you know, a foreign object in coming into that field of view. It would give off a different reading, right? Or when you have the sun um, hitting a certain object and that object moving, you can also set your camera off. So um, as you mentioned, there's a, there's a couple things 
and it's worse in the summertime than any other any other uh, time of the year. Just yeah, based on the the position of the sun. But if you can avoid those harsh lighting contrasts, like when you're on the let's say like you're on the edge of a bean field and you're in the timber like ten feet, so you're under a super heavy canopy, mm-hmm. right? You have all the foliage of the canopy. The light metering in that system is is reading that there's not a whole lot of light, but when you're watching and monitoring that field, the sun is hitting that open area, um, and it's getting way more light than what the camera is actually getting, which is potential for issues with your PIR sensor, and it's going to cause your daytime pictures a lot of times to be overexposed or washed out, so they'll be super, super bright. The colors won't be as vibrant. So the lighting and where you're setting your camera up also can affect your the photo or video quality as well. But back to the um, false triggers, if you can, we're in our area of the country, if you can point your cameras north, um, whenever it's applicable, right? Right. Like if you need to point your camera south to get pictures of deer, like that's what you got to do. Yeah. But when it's applicable, if you could point your cameras north away from the sun, um, that is like, that's the best practice. Sometimes you can't always be you know, dead due north. Sometimes you got to be northeast or northwest, and that's it is what it is. But um, just pointing your cameras north will help um, in those scenarios. And then obviously, you know, you do all the other things. You clear the vegetation around the camera, like we talked about earlier. If you can, you keep your cameras above the ground vegetation. So when it's you know those stump shoots and uh, weeds and stuff are growing, you don't end up like me with you know uh, a briar <laughs> right. dead center in your camera. Right. And then if your if your camera has the ability um, to lower the sensitivity of your sensor, you can also do that depending on what kind of set it is. So if it's a set where, uh, let's say you're monitoring a, a mineral site, um, you know that's a static environment. You typically know where those deer are coming from. You know they're going to spend you know more time than um, you know. A trail set like they're not just walking through there they're gonna they're walking in they're gonna eat mineral they're gonna hang out there for maybe a minute or two so when you're in those static sets you can lower um the sensitivity of that sensor to help combat those false triggers if your camera will allow not all cameras have that those capabilities but it, if your camera does that's you know it's a good option for you right yeah i mean i you know i definitely have in recent years paid more attention to kind of what direction I'm, I'm setting up my cameras. And to your point, it's like, I'll go into a place where I'm planning to hang. And the first thing I'll do is like, I'll recognize like, okay, this is where the deer are going to come from, you know, whatever, if it's a scrape or if it's just a trail or whatever the case is. And then the very next thing I do before I even start to look at a tree, like where I want, what tree I want to hang it in or whatever. The very next thing I do is I figure out like which way East and West is in like, know that I don't want to, I definitely don't want to point them in those two directions. <laughs> if I can avoid, right. It's like, I'll mm-hmm. deal with some South right. if I have to. Right. But ideally to your point, I want it facing North, but I definitely don't want it pointed East and West. Yeah. And so I'm trying to find at all costs, something that I can point it at least not, not in those two directions. Now I've set them up pointed in East and West. Cause to your point, it was the only place I could in order to get the picture and I'll just deal with whatever comes with it. Right. Right. You know, and that's one of those ones where it's like, you look, you check it in mid July. And if you're just getting blown out pictures, even when things are triggering and it doesn't matter. Right. Then like, yeah, okay. It's, you might as well move it because you're not getting squat from it, you know, or maybe you're getting nighttime pictures, which is just as well. Cause then you don't have to deal with it, you know? So, but but yeah, I've had plenty of washed out pictures in the past from hanging them, hanging them that way. And it's funny because I think a lot of people, when they hang along the field edge, they think it's the easiest set. I've actually, whenever I've hung cameras back at the family farm, it was actually one of the hardest places for me to hang because it was over a clover field. And I was going to get that bounce of sun off that super bright green <laughs> in June and July. Right. Yeah. And was going to get, you know, more false yeah. triggers than I actually get in the timber, to be honest. Yeah. No. Yeah. Those, those, those field edge sets are the hardest, um, whether you're talking about, you know, false triggers, PIR sensors, or like just like photo quality. Like when you're in that harsh lighting contrast, the camera camera is controlled by auto exposure tables. So like the light metering system reads what light the camera is getting, and then it's just a a, a table of commands. And the cameras, you know, it's different if you were out there with a DSLR and you were able to adjust um, your ISO, you know, and your shutter stuff speed, like that, yeah. and exactly like it just you know these devices are all automated so the light metering system gets that reading and then the camera is going to do um whatever the the light metering system tells it to do so 
it's um yeah it, it can it can definitely be definitely be tricky yeah. so the next thing man and this is like a big one right and i think everyone who's run trail cameras in the summer has run into this and it's a pain in the ass and 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 i've had and i know you have too have this has shut cameras down for the season or that where it's like they got i won't say ruined but they ruined like the first two months of the season for me and that is bugs and ants in my camera right and so you mm. guys have some oh, yeah. slick ways to combat this that I've, I've started using and it's been great because I've had way less problems with this, but how are you guys dealing with bugs and ants? Cause those things will get into those cameras, man. And you'll have the perfect set. You're like, man, I'm going to get hammer deer here. I know there's a giant here. I, I watched him last year. I can't wait to get pictures of him. And then you go back and you pull your camera in like mid June or if worst case scenario, you waited all summer and you go in and like ants just infested it and it stopped working by like June four. <laughs> and you got nothing, you know yeah, what I mean? So yeah. how to give the folks out there some tips on how they can kind of manage through that. Well, there's a, there's a couple, couple different things you could do. One, the thing that we like to do the most is simply use permethrin. Mm-hmm. So if you're hanging, if you're using straps with your cameras, if you're hanging cameras with straps, we will soak those straps in permethrin before we put them out. And then if they're standard SD card cameras, when we go out for that first card pool um, in July, we typically have a spray bottle of permethrin with us. And then we'll, you know, we'll spray those straps. Again. Mm-hmm. If you're not using straps, you can do the same thing. You could just spray it on the tree above, above the camera, below the camera. You can spray the back of the camera. Um, it doesn't seem to last as long if you're, sp- if, when you're spraying on the tree as, you know, as applying it to the, the fabric or the nylon um, strap, the camera strap, mm-hmm. but you could still do it on the tree. That is by far our favorite, um, method to, to deal with ants and insects and spiders and, and all that. I think, um, you know, if you do one application before you put your cameras out in June and then fresh nose up when you're pulling cards in July, you can get through the entire summer, um, with just those two applications without having any issues. Um, if you're using it, you know, if you're using a mount and you're just screwing into a tree and you don't have any straps, you're spraying it on the, on the bark and on the camera, you're not going to get five or six weeks out of that, but it's better than nothing. Right. Um, the other thing you could do is, which we've started doing this with, uh, with cell cams is, um, you can actually just take like the granular, like dust or powder that you would like put around your house and like mulch beds or mm-hmm. whatever. You could take a pinch of that and actually put it inside the case of the camera. Um, and that works really well too. And we don't do that with regular SD card cameras because obviously when you open the shell up and pull that SD card, all that stuff falls out and, um, it's kind of a pain in the butt to carry that tube or a bag with you to put that stuff back in. But with a cell camera, it's usually you're putting it out, you're closing it up and you know, you're walking away from it for a good while if, if not the season. So you can put that stuff right inside the camera and then, uh, basically just, just walk away. So those, those two things are definitely big tips. Um, you know, if your camera has audio ports for the microphone and you're not using audio, you can put a little piece of tape over the, um, over the microphone mm-hmm. or the audio ports on the camera. Um, you know, Jeff Sturgis does that a lot. Um, those would probably be the three, the three biggest things. And, you know, there's the obvious, you know, if, if, uh, there's an anthill on the bottom, bottom of, bottom of the tree, don't put your damn camera right. there. <laughs> Um, try to stay away from, try to stay away from like rotten or, or dead falls or, you know, dead trees. It seems like there's always more, um, insects and, you know, messing around on those than live and, uh, well trees. Right. And then if someone does happen to get a camera that gets beat up or ate up with bugs and stuff like that, you can always, you know, Mm -hmm. pull it out. Right. And then toss it. I think you said, I think you've talked about putting it in a plastic bag and stick it in the freezer and just freeze them. Cause that camera is built to last as long as you have a good camera is built to work in those sub freezing temperatures and sure. it'll, it'll kill whatever's in there yeah. and you just clean it out and should be, should be good to go. Yeah. So, I mean, those things, whatever, but spiders, ants, whatever kind of insect, they can, they can cause some real internal damage to cameras. They'll get in there and chew on ribbon connectors and chew through your rubber seals and you're dealing with moisture ingress. So, they're a pain in the butt, but if you do, yeah, if you find yourself in that scenario, you have ants or bugs in your camera, um, clean them out the best you can, take the camera home, take the battery tray out, take your SD card out, put that camera in a Ziploc bag, throw it in the freezer for at least 24 hours. Um, and then, you know, that 
in a day or two, take that thing back out, clean it up, and that will kill um, any insects. It'll kill the eggs. It'll it'll get rid of them. It's just whether or not they did inter- internal damage while they were in right. there. Uh, it's is the big question. So, um, yeah, you know, throw that thing in the freezer. When you get it out, I would say throw a, a, a new SD card, new set of batteries in it, and just play with it around the house to make sure it's you know, working right and there's not something funky or something haywire going on before you actually go and put it back in the tank. Yeah, I literally just had to do that because I was scouting last weekend and I walked across a camera while I was scouting that I had left out. It's been out for two years and I forgot about it. <laughs> and I was like, I felt like you because I've walked up on stuff when we've been hunting or we were like, hey, where did this camera go? And it's like, and then it's like three years later, we walk across it somewhere. But uh, it, it was yeah, just like, you yeah. know, bugs. And so I did that and flipped it on and it worked and put an SD card in it and let it sit in the basement and just track people walking by to make sure it's good to go before it heads back into out into the timber. And I got another soldier ready to roll. So it is, it is back from the dead, but I think we covered the summer trail camera session pretty well, man. I think, is there any other tips or any hacks or anything like that, that we've, that we've left out that you think that we need to cover? Um, the one thing it's not, not, not necessarily related to summer but this is like just a trail camera tip in general. Um, we talked about like, you know, avoid harsh lighting for better like daytime photos and videos. Mm-hmm. But when you're concerned about better nighttime photos, if you're really, you know, particular about your photo quality or video quality, um, make sure that you're setting your camera up with some type of backdrop or background within that flash range. Cause what that, what that's going to allow the camera to do and the, and the, um, and the flash unit, if there's a backdrop within the uh, proximity of that flash range, so if your flash range is like 70 feet, if you set that camera up 50 feet from, let's say, like a, uh, a field edge, like there's a wood lot there or fence, a fence row, that flash is going to be held by whatever that object is, or it can also be retro-reflected back to the camera, and it's going to allow your nighttime photos and videos to be a little brighter. Right. So if, you know, if you're a guy that's super concerned about photo or video quality, specifically at night, um, that's one thing you can do to kind of um, increase the uh, photo quality. There. Awesome. That's a killer tip. I didn't, I never knew that. I'm going to have to pay attention to that because my nighttime photos are always kind of, and I'm not super particular, but I just want to make sure, I want to see that it's a buck and if I'm interested or not. That's really kind of my my criteria, I guess. So it might not be as yeah. as yeah. important me, for me. but Me too. So, all right, man. Well, so with that, brother, I think that wraps this one, this uh, first session up. If you wouldn't mind, uh, let folks out there listening know where they can find out more about you, where they can find out more about Exodus. Yeah. Um, social, all basically all things social at Exodus Trail Cameras. It's YouTube, Facebook, Instagram. Um, and yeah, website's exodusoutdoorgear.com. Awesome. Thanks for coming on, brother. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And hell, while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there, too. I'd be super appreciative if you'd be able to do those two things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout-out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, and Maven Optics. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do hard shit hat for those of us who like to embrace microdosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.